Thank you, Lord, for this day. Be with us now. We do give you thanks. On this day, the day of Pentecost, of your um, coming to us uh, in, uh, uh, through your Spirit, Lord, and, and making known to us uh, who we are, um, who you are, and then most importantly, what you have done. Now open your word to us by that same Spirit, I pray, and make uh, your word living and active. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to see everyone. Um, working through. Good morning. Hey, Elizabeth, how are you? Uh, find my notes. Um, working through the last five books of the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. Um, sorry, getting sorted here. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, so I was thinking about something to do during the summer. Uh, thought, well, I like teaching the book of Revelation. It's fun, it's interesting, it's different, it's crazy, it's wild, it's unique. Um, it's fantastic in different ways that we could use that word, uh, as I've said each time. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's an appropriate ending to, a, to, to the book, to our book. Um, how else would we want to end the book uh, uh, that is the living word of God. With all respect to uh, to Jude, do we just want to stop at the end of Jude, or do we need something that's a little bit more? And there's something even about the. Uh, no one, I don't go too far in this, but some scholars, some um, uh, preachers throughout history do, where you line up a lot of the symbolic nature of the Book of Revelation, and more than even this, the symbolic nature of the Book of Revelation, but the structure of it. And there is the Bible is really interesting, actually, when you look at some of its literary features and the way that that some of the books, the Gospel of Mark, for instance, withstands this scrutiny really well, where you see its structure and you see it moving, say, from points of concentric circles. Like if you take, this is total digression, but the book of Mark in the middle with the, uh, the event of the transfiguration and then you go out, as it were, in terms of a ripple effect. Um, it really withstands some interesting scrutiny. I may do this one time. I haven't taught this. Uh, that the the two feeding narratives are on each side and then going out. There's a compliment to his, uh, 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 to, to the great Messianic secret of Mark, tell no one but on the other side of the ripple, the revelation of, uh, of his nature and his character, right up to sort of his baptism um, by the Holy Spirit and his baptism into his death. And there's a, there's a great and really tight literary structure, which is really phenomenal, in fact. Uh, the book of Revelation has something similar to that um, in lots of ways, uh, but notably, this is the third to last chapter of the Bible. Um, we're going to skip two weeks and then come back on June 29th and look at the, the second to last chapter um, and then end, obviously, in the last chapter, Revelation 20. But the third to last chapter uh, is a real bookend to the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3. We probably know Genesis well enough where Genesis 1 starts in the beginning was the Word and we hear about the creation story and then in Genesis 2 we we capitulate, that's a specific word, we kind of go into the same story but from a different angle with a little bit more depth and that's the creation in particular of Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis 3, what do we have? We have the introduction of, uh, of the great problem of being human. Uh, sin death, um, the serpent, the devil, uh, all that is evil, all that then has to be undone throughout uh, our history, 
uh, is introduced in the third chapter of the Bible. Well, here we are in the third to last chapter of the Bible, and all that is being undone. This really is kind of the end of the end of the end, which is why you know the death of death, which is a great phrase. Um, John Owen, a Puritan, had a had a great tract called "The Death of Death in the Death of Christ," and I've always liked that, so I borrow it whenever I can. This is the uh, the chapter where we hear about the death of death. Death literally gets thrown into uh, the bottomless pit, the abyss. Its death is chained and thrown in. We're going to read that. Um, the end of the devil, Satan himself, um, in somewhat of a uh, uh, an anticlimactic ending. He's also, this is the end of, of Satan. So the end of all that was introduced in Genesis 3, here in Revelation 20, it's all being undone. More than that, it's being done. It's being finished. It's being completely tied up and, and put away. So Revelation, that was really just a way to let people kind of come in um, to, uh, to, uh, to walk through the room. Um, last week we looked at the writer on the white horse, and I didn't leave enough time. It's a great part uh, where, uh, where Jesus comes um, finally and fully in the second advent as the rider on the white horse, and we saw the importance of names where he was called the rider on the white horse, faithful and true, the word of God. And then very interestingly, he had a name written on his thigh, which is owned only to himself. You know, all that mystery or the power of a name. If I call out Elizabeth and she turns, you know, I've got some power over her. Well, there's a part of God in Christ that is, uh, is just, it's not for us to know. That within the Godhead, there's still impenetrable, unknowable mysteries known only to God by definition where the creature, the creator stays apart from the creature, and there's a name known only to himself. That we can know so much through the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. Um, that's the only way we know anything about God, is when God says, I want you to know this about me. And we know that through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the, the appropriator, so to speak, of that knowledge. Um, but we saw the importance of the name of the rider of the white horse that still, with all that we know about him, as the word of God goes forth like a sword from his mouth, and the only offense that God has, so to speak, although there's lots of imagery about the sword and its strikes and, you know, and it, and it, and it decimates, etc., uh, really it's the spoken word. That's the power of God, is in the spoken word. His name is the Word of God. Because in Genesis 1, where is power exercised? Power is exercised by the Word of God. We can't make too big a deal. We can't impregnate with too much drama the Word of God, the Logos of God. That as God speaks, action. As God speaks, reaction. As God speaks, consequence. Things follow in sequence with the Word of God. There was nothing. It's not even that there was nothing as we know it in relation to something. It just was void. It just wasn't. Like time, absence. I mean, complete or theoretical. Um, you have to put on your, your sort of, you know, our junior Stephen Hawking hats here to say that we can only infer absence by presence, but remove that. There just wasn't anything. And then God spoke into that and said, let there be something. And it was known as light and water and air. And then of all things, people. 
which is imbue, who are imbued in the image of God, that relational character of God. So, anyway, I didn't mean to go through all that. To say that Genesis 3 has a bookend with Revelation 20, and the Word of God is, uh, is paramount. Because how do things end? By the spoken Word of God. And here we are in the Logos of God, the Word of God, here at the, uh, the end of the book. So, with that as a long preface, um, if you have a Bible, um, and if not, there's some up here. Um, uh, thank, yeah, just come up and grab one or raise your hand and maybe somebody will be kind and pass you one. Um, some of the misun- most misunderstood, less than that, uh, most contentious and controversial verses in the Scripture are here at the first part of Revelation 20. Um, and that's not just me being uh, hyperbolic. Um, hyperbolic? Hyperbolic? Which one is it? Hyperbolic? Hyperbolic. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, um, this is the, the millennial views. Um, pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, amillennialism. This is Tim LaHaye, Left Behind, The Rapture. Um, this is at different points in the church history. Um, some of y'all know the phrase, the evangelization of the world in this gener- generation um, came out in between the world wars uh, where in a post-millennial uh, way that we're going to sort of hasten the coming of Christ and we're going to make it make it happen. We're going to call down the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven and we have a part in that. That's kind of the way it kind of began. The movements of the social gospel had its root in that post-millennial view that comes out of this. There's the amillennial view which um, has it very much more in a uh, sort of symbolic way. I'm not going to go too far into that. Um, I'd like to say you know we can maybe have some time at the end but I never I'm a good marker of time to leave that. We will go there some. That's here at the beginning. There's a lot that we don't know. That's just what I want to say. And all those views have good biblical... You would say that all those views have had a, a strong place in Christian orthodoxy um, amongst people that take the Bible and, and the reality of God and what God has done very seriously. All three of those positions um, have, a, have found a strong place. I tend to fall in the amillennial view, um, uh, whatever that's worth. Um, I know that doesn't mean much. It means something to some of y'all, but not to most. Um, uh, we'll look at that, and then we'll get to a place and listen to uh, some of, of Verdi's Requiem Mass, and then look at William Blake, um, one of my favorite artists. So that's where we're headed. So if you have a Bible, turn to Revelation 20, and we will climb in. Why don't we... Um, I'll read the whole chapter, and then we'll go back through it, and uh, we'll go that way. Here's a image. We'll go ahead and just put that up while we're reading. This is William Blake. Um, we'll look at a, another piece of his for um, at some length. Let me turn off one of the lights. This is an image of the defeat of Satan, which we're going to read about at the very beginning. Um, what's best? Yeah. Can y'all read? Is that too dark? Okay. Um uh, obviously, Satan, the serpent, the devil. Um, you can see the chain, bottomless pit. Um, this was in the back part. You can see the birds of prey coming for the great supper of God, which uh, which is where I had to rush through last week. Um, you can see vague places of of, uh, of other the host of heaven, or maybe some of the the uh, the the, the uh, Resurrection of the dead. Not sure which it is, but but one of the angels, presumably Michael, 
with the great key, locking him into the abyss with the chain. And so here's the, that's an image, just put it out there, um, for what we read about at the beginning of Revelation 20. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. That's, that's one of the real fall points. Of, uh, that's, that's one of the break points between those different views. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by that uh, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea and the and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, big chapter. Short, but big. Um, and we're looking at some huge themes, which of course have been played out in... Um, uh, in the whole of Scripture, um, with the exception of Genesis 1 and 2, and now in Revelation 21 and 22, next two weeks. Initial thoughts, interactions with this? What is, how, does this how does this strike you? What questions come up? What's the, uh, maybe even an emotional impact of these words, if, if there is one? I want to be on the Book of Life. It's a little bit of fear. A little bit of maybe anxiety. Oh, there's a division here. There's books, and I want this one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it said, I think the thing that like, resonates with me, their name's written in the book according to what they have done. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So there's a little bit of like, wait. Hold on. What? What? think about like grace and works, you know? Grace and works comes up. Thorn, you can see, I mean, this is a big pregnant chapter. Lots of big themes. Um. Right. 
very strange. And he must be in there for a little while, and then he comes back out, and then the battle happens. Yeah. I'll answer, I'll approach a lot of questions. That one, you know, I can stand on solid ground to say, I don't know. <laughs> and that's what other people are saying, too. Um, but here it is, given to us. What else? Questions? Interactions? It's, it's a lot to grasp. It's a lot to grasp, so... But we've got 40 minutes, and so we're going to be we're going to be fine. So. Do you think Satan has a copy of Scripture and knows what's coming? Absolutely. No, that's a good question, an easy one to answer. Why? Because he quotes Scripture, you know, at several points. Um, uh, and I'll put this out now. Come back to this. Why? Well, now I need to go into the language. And our Lord himself also spoke much about the final judgment. Um, he spoke more about hell than anywhere else in the Bible in terms of its, its reality and also of Satan and interaction with, interaction with demons. Satan quoted scripture to him several times in the wilderness when he was tempted. And Jesus himself referred to uh, uh, the binding of the strong man, this binding the chain and all that, that, that you know, I, I, others, myself, Think included um, would say that the the binding of Satan happened while Christ was it's already happened, and so in this weird way John can describe several events achronistically where either at the two events that are happening at the same time but of course he has to say one in Revelation 19 and over at the same time so to speak of course they're not really in time that's the weird thing uh, he describes the same thing from a different perspective different 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 you know a chapter later. Some of that's at play here, where Satan, who is already bound, um, who is already defeated, uh, now we're, we're having it. So, but that's not all of the answer, because plainly the, the time, this time as we know it, is going to end, and this is a description of what that looks like. So when we go back into the text, we'll, we'll brush up against that. But does Satan have a copy of the scripture and know what's coming? Yes. Um, yes. Let's come through this. Um, going to go so quickly through. There's different ways when you can approach some really, really big questions, um, and I'm going to go the latter. The first, uh, we can unpack it. I could really try to get into the nuances of premillennialism and pre-tribulational premillennialism, post-tribulational premillennialism. I mean, you get all these really strange. Adjectives, um, and this is what when you're driving through rural Alabama and you see all the churches. This is where some of the churches, no, 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 no joking, um, intended, have divided. I mean, denominations form. In other words, a nomination Christian has been denominated in all these sort of sub uh, categories over some of the views of end times. Um, uh, it makes for good Hollywood, Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye, the Left Behind series, the Rapture. Um, uh, we, I could either go through and try to, to describe in great detail or do a broad gloss. I'm going to do a broad gloss because I really want to get more to the Last Judgment, um, which is uh, verse 11 forward. But, but going through, um, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. So, um, unlike other times, we don't really have a time reference point. Um, uh, it doesn't say, and then after this happened, I saw an angel. It's just, then I saw an angel. We're not really sure in reference to what. Remember, we just left the rider on the white horse coming down and the beast being defeated in the great supper of God. 
where the uh, the birds from heaven came down and gorged themselves until you know they were just you know bursting at the seams as it were on the uh, the kings and others um, and now we've got maybe a concurrent or maybe it's in a sequence we're not really sure um, image where an angel an unnamed angel with no description we don't see an angel with uh, uh, six wings or anything like that which you have other places relative uh, uh, paucity of description which is really unusual um, but in some ways it's really not uh, because the the end of it all is going to be relatively anticlimactic that we realize that the power which we've been fighting all these these uh, all our history, I was going to say all our lives, it's a lot bigger than that, is uh, is really almost no power at all. Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon. And then we, just to make no mistake, he gives all the descriptors. The dragon, that ancient serpent, Genesis 3, um, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After this, he must be released for a little while. So what do we make of this thousand years? There's a lot of ways to look at this. Thousand years, literally. Um, thousand years, a little bit more symbolically. Thousand years, completely symbolically. Uh, what do we know about thousand years? I'm relying heavily here on Leon Morris, a um, respected scholar who I think a lot of... Um, uh, uh, he takes the number 10. Remember, numbers are important in Revelation. Um, it's the number of completeness. Um, and what is a thousand? It's 10 cubed. Uh, or it's 10 times, yeah, 10 cubed. Uh, cubed, three, trinity. Holy, holy, holy is what the, the, uh, the, the four um, creatures sit around the throne saying all the time. Where the, the, the scripture really is pretty uh, reserved for three. You can say truly, truly, but only a few times do you say truly, 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 um, or holy, 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 when Isaiah has his vision and then in Revelation. And I think there's this echo of that, this is now the end of the completeness of time, where in the complete discretion of the complete number 10 uh, to the third power, um, or to the power of three, uh, you know, time, time, time. Um, a thousand years. So not the millennium, you know, 1999 happened and then 2000 came and went and everything was okay. That it's not the thousand <laughs> years, there's not that sort of fantastical part of it. But the, as Morris, how did he put it? Um, the time, the completeness of time that is utterly and only determined by God. Um, that's the thousand years. And so there's this sense that God is absolutely in control and absolutely in command where we have this thousand years, which is just a long time. You know, generations come and generations go, uh, and a thousand years, which are, as the Psalms would say, are like a day to God. You know, it's just that sort of timelessness where he's got complete authority, even over that, um, that, uh, that he puts Satan, um, the ancient serpent, the devil, um, binds him and puts him away for a complete time determined by him. And then what happens in the interim? And I saw thrones. And everywhere else in Revelation, thrones are reserved in heaven. Um, so maybe that's where it is, but we're not sure about the thrones. We don't know who their occupants are. So it's just a lot that we don't know. Remember elsewhere we saw in Revelation 4 uh, who was on the thrones, 
what the thrones were like, what they were made of. And here's just sort of that lack of information. And then I saw the thrones and seated on them uh, were those to whom had been the authority to judge was committed. That's weird language. We don't know that. We don't know who are these people, who are these creatures. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, the martyrs, for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who are not worshipped the beast or its image and received the mark in the foreheads of their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. There is no mention of a second resurrection. Um, so is there a second resurrection or is this simply because the phraseology could be otherwise, this is the group that first enjoyed the resurrection from the dead. Um, be my tendency to read it that way. There's a translation place here that uh, these are the groups that enjoyed the resurrection unto life, that um, all shall be caught up by God into God, and our lives shall be hidden with Christ in God, Apostle Paul, uh, in that resurrection from the dead. And the, the living will have no advantage over the dead, um, that all, uh, whether before Christ, after Christ, all shall be caught up whose names are written in the book of life. And we'll get to there in just a moment. Um, that's kind of the image that I want to give to us without going into all the ways this has been sort of controversial. That there's just a, an ap- whatever it means, there's an absolute sense that something is happening and it's not by accident. Something is happening and it's completely determined by God. The completeness of the authority, therefore the authorship of God, that's not in question. There's a lot of questions. The authority of who is to judge, how we interpret this, are we supposed to to look at signs and wonders and, and sort of read? I would say no. Um, but, but the authority of God is not in question. Um, blessed are they, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, um, or who shares in the resurrection. Uh, over such the second death has no power, for they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then the defeat of Satan. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Um, what, what is this? I don't know. Um, Obviously, I don't know. We don't know. We do know this. Uh, there's a way that it's all going to end. Um, the reality of evil is just that. It's real. And that will be caught up. And that's where this is coming. It will have an end. Um, and so now as Satan is released for a little while, just so that, the, uh, so that Act 5 can happen, and he's reintroduced, and he's pulled back out here on the stage. That is a gross understatement, but, but, it, but it works. Um, that Act 5 may happen, that Satan is released, and watch how, watch what it, uh, in some ways an anticlimactic the end is. All of what we have been working through in the Scripture, um, it ends in a verse and a half. Uh, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And here's the only drama that comes up. It comes up to a semicolon. And they marched up, these gathered, the gather armies of evil, so to speak. Um, this is Mordor. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camps of the saints and the beloved city. 
And that's the drama. And so the enemy came and they surrounded him and they marched in and they kind of pressed in. You're thinking, oh, no. You know, I mean, if this was a movie, you'd really sort of bring this up like, you know, they're, they're, they're surrounded. Evil's going to win. But then it's just this flick, you know. It's either a comma or semicolon, depending on the, uh, the translation. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. And it's done. And it's done. And do you notice who binds up Satan at the end? It's such a non-event. It's not even, it's not God the Father. That's not like, you know, sort of, that's called dualism, where God, the great emperor of good, and Satan, the great emperor of bad, and the two of them are involved in this cosmic Star Wars struggle, you know, good versus evil. It's not that. It's not even the sun. It's not even Jesus coming down as the rider on the great white horse uh, with the, 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 the sword being the word of God, that he's the one he does. He gives it to his lieutenant and says, go take care of this. He gives it to his an angel here and says, oh, go take care of the, the great evil one, um, the serpent, the devil, Satan, and, uh, and finish him forever and throw him into the lake of fire. Um, which is the second death. The second death is the final death. There is no redemption. There is no... Um, that's, that's it. That is the end. That gets in a whole other place. Is it annihilation or is it eternal torment? We're not going there today. Um, but that's the end of Satan. Um, so with that, uh, let's listen to something. Uh, comments? <coughs> Don't have a lot of time, but I do want to leave a comment. That's, that's you, such a big part. Do you think that at the end of time we'll... We're in heaven. We'll look back at all of this and go, what was the big deal? You know, what good question. About that? This is totally my, totally go cracky here. Um, hopefully it comes from the scripture, just being formed by the scripture. But especially hanging on, on not next week, the next chapter, which will be in June 29th, two weeks, three weeks from today. Uh, whatever it is, heaven or more than that, when the new heaven and new earth are formed and we're there with all whom we love. And now there is no separation where the Lord is this temple. The Lord, there is no need for a sun or a moon because the Lord is the light. And now the dwelling of God is with his people. That's all going to be the language that in that, by definition of the extension of all that, there'll be no awareness of need. And so in a certain sense, I don't think we're going to look back and think, wow, wasn't that just like, remember that cheap motel that we slept in? Oh, my back hurt and all that. That's what Dorothy Sayers, that was her image. Uh, and it, we won't even have that memory of, of like, God, this bed is so much better, you know, because it just we won't have a basis of comparison. It will simply be, what's that? Truth. Truth. It'll simply be the way it is, and it will be an absence of any want, including a memory of, of pain or suffering or of deprivation, of need, of absence. That's what it is. There won't be any reflection of absence. Um, I think that's what I believe, but I'm not sure. Um, exactly. Yep. Yep. And Lewis, and we're going to go into that. He's he writes on this really well. Um, because he writes it sort of within a, a story. Let's listen to uh, uh, Giuseppe Verdi. Um, and he wrote, um, uh, as many did, a, a piece for um, 
to the setting of the Latin Mass for the dead, the Requiem Mass, as it was called. Uh, the text is a great text. Um, I'd forgotten this until I started preparing for this. Listen, we're going to listen to the part called the Tuba Mirum. Uh, uh, watch it on YouTube. A very earnest conductor, by the way. Um, uh, as I was researching this, read that it was some, it's some of the, the loudest music ever uh, written, um, uh, the loudest unamplified music. It's quadruple fortissimo. If you know the notes on score, it'll say like, you know, forte or fortissimo. This is underscored four times. Basically, he's telling, okay, if you're playing an instrument, play it as loud as you can, and if you're singing, sing as loud as you can, because this is the great judgment of God. Going back to a place in, in 1 Thessalonians where it says, and a trumpet will sound. Um, tuba is a trumpet, the tuba miram, the sounding of the trumpet at the last, which is going to be the end of all time. Uh, and he, uh, he places the trumpets around. It's, it's, a, it's a piece written for double choir and a full orchestra plus some extra pieces. The extra pieces are some of the trumpets. And he has them placed, like if this is the orchestra pit, he's got some here, some here, some here, some here. So it was Dolby surround sound before there was such a thing. And he had all that going, and he's telling them to play as loud as you can because this is the words to the setting. Um, the trumpet will send... It's wondrous sound throughout the earth's sepulchers or tombs and gather all before the throne. And so that's what you're going to hear with a great bombast. Um, the trumpets and the, the choir just <coughs> yelling that, that the trumpet will sound and all the, all the earth's tombs will be emptied and all of the dead will be gathered before the throne of God. And then I just, you know, just wish you were this guy, this deep bassist comes in. He has a solo um, when you're going to hear him say, Moors, Moors, that means death. Um, and then he speaks of death. Death and nature will be astounded. Isn't that a cool phrase? Death and nature will be astounded when all creation rises again to answer the judge. So that's the text, because you don't hear the text. I mean, because it's just so loud and all that stuff. So this is Giuseppe Verde's um, piece from within the, uh, the Requiem Mass called the Tuba Mirum. Three minutes, 44 seconds. I'm going to turn it up a little bit to try to give it some effect. So I'm sorry right here. So, um, Gives me chills. I mean, that's the trumpet at the last, the last sound.
Death and nature will be astounded when all creation rises again to answer to the judge. Tuba Miram, uh, the last wondrous trumpet, which sounds and calls forth the uh, the beginning of the end. Um, thoughts on this? I'm trying to make a decision on how to end. Let's go to the text. I'll just throw this up there. Um, and then I saw, verse 11, a great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And so now, as uh, the earth was formless and void, when the Lord began uh, his work on the old earth, what will be called now the old earth in comparison to, to what will, will now be remade as the new Narnia, the new earth and the new heavens, uh, just as the earth was formless and void, it's now returning to a formlessness and to a void, where even the earth and the sky fled away, and there was no place for them to go, because space itself, this is really weird, I was called this sort of the animal house stuff with Donald Sutherland, uh, there is no place for earth to go, because even that involves like, you know, the, 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 Lord, is, the Lord is the Lord even over the space-time continuum. And there is no place for it to go. It simply goes away. It stops. And what was now just is not. Absence. Um, and no place was found for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened. So there's these books. But then one is set aside, and it says, and the other book. I'll, 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 move. I'll work with that and kind of move to a place of hope. Um, so we got these books, um, and then another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. And so the Book of Life is certainly set apart. Um, it is holy. That's what the word set apart means, that it's something different with this Book of Life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, not the book, um, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. In other words, everywhere... Uh, from all manner of time, everything gets put out here right in front of the throne. Uh, 
uh, and all is coming to this, to, to right here in this concentrated point, in the head of a pin. Everything's coming to its place. Uh, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So how do we make sense of this? Um, us gospel, grace, Christians, um, the deeds that are recorded in these books, but which is set apart with those that are written in the book of life. Uh, the key is in the book of life. Um, the reality of our need meets the reality of these books in which all of our deeds are written, so to speak. Uh, books plural. But it also meets the reality of this one book which is set aside, the book of life, um, the author of whom is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's written in the book of life is the story of his redemption. The story, the story of a, of the real subject, the deep subject of all of the revelation of Scripture, of of the uh, sinning human and the justifying God, and that is the contents, that is the plot, so to speak, of the Book of Life. And for those of us who are written in the Book of Life, and I say those of us because we have the doctrine of assurance given to the Church. Um, that those of us who are written in the book of life, there is no fear. Because over and against any deed which is recorded in these other books, and I take that somewhat symbolically, but I take the reality too, uh, the, um, the stamp, it is finished, <laughs> is placed over it, and it's sealed in blood. You could preach that. Um, signed, sealed, and delivered, written in the Lord's blood, uh, so that the the... The fear is blotted out. The deeds are blotted out by what the deed, singular, of Christ has done um, for us on our behalf. It is finished. To Tetelestai, the last word of Christ on the cross, is the word here which we hold on to here at the end of the book as we confront these books and the book of life. Um, what's written in the book of life? Tetelestai. It is finished. Uh, there is no fear. There is no scale. There is no, um, there is no grade. It's simply done. And that's good news. And it's not, it's not divorced here. There's not sort of this suspension at the last hour of, uh, of all that we hold on to. Um, if anything, it's brought into great focus. Uh, the subject of theology, the subject of the scripture, the sinning human and the justifying God. So I'll take that as a stop. This is a, a great piece, but we're not going to look at it. Um, I had all these details. Um, we might look at it next week. Um, 30 seconds for a question, a disagreement. You guys scattered. Yeah, Rita? You, well, it does sound like there's a looking back of what we did. That there is a, you know, in order to understand the redemptive power of what God sure. has done for us. So that book is opened. There it is. This is what we've done. Right. But on our end, maybe, you know, because what what is, this is really weird. This is a revelation given to a human, John, by the Lord Jesus Christ about that which must happen. Of course, so we're here. That was here. We're here. If you want to look at it in terms of time, about something here. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Now, when we're here, when we're the dead and the, the, it's emptied, are we going to look back and sort of realize this? We might. I think the scripture is silent there. Um, John is being given a vision of what must come. Uh, how will we be conscious, so to speak, of that? I don't know. But we're conscious of it now. So we're looking back, as it were, in the future, <laughs> um, which is something. I don't want to downplay that. So this suggests that when we die, we're not in heaven with clouds. We're somewhere else, or there's a, an absence of time until this happens. Uh, and then we're judged altogether. Y- y- that, that, is a, that is a way to read it, and it's an acceptable way to read it. Um, that uh, as death in Hades, um, it's pointed out by a lot of Orthodox folks that the idea of Hades being, you know, the place of torment that that came sort of extra biblically in church tradition, uh, that really in some ways it's just a repository of the dead, a suspension place. Um, uh, I don't give that a whole lot of thought because I just I don't know why I do, because I don't think it's clear. I don't think it's primary. I think it's a secondary word. It's an important word, but it's not a primary word of the scripture. Uh, and what I think about it doesn't really, isn't going to change its reality. It might change my reality. I do accept that. Um, but I don't know. We know that... the cultural storybook fantasy. Right, right. I approach it with this, and I said this last time, and I'll end here. No, I won't. I'm just going to leave that, so... Time is an issue, and it's a big issue. Um, C.S. Lewis has a great three-page chapter in Mere Christianity called Time and Beyond Time. It's uh, it's worth reading just towards that. Let me pray. Lord, uh, such a big chapter, and I'm such a peon, a pygmy. Um, allow your word to go forth. Uh, allow it to be a word of hope. Um, allow it to be a word of truth. Let the word of uh, your work as a justifying God for sinning humans, for sinning creatures, be the word which is, uh, by your Holy Spirit, the word given to us. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.